0: What is up everyone and thanks for tuning in. It's hard to believe, but 2023 is coming to a close. I wanted to go back through the entire year of episodes that we have done and highlight several of my favorite conversations from the last 12 months. And I also wanted to take this moment to say thank you for tuning into the show in our very first year. It's been a lot of fun and we are constantly learning and evolving on this journey. It's been such a great ride over the last 12 months from engaging with our listeners, and all the wonderful conversations that I've had with the guests on the show. So, thank you once again. So, let's jump into today's best of 2023 episode, featuring our previous host for the podcast, Tim Vale, and our co-founder and CTO at Cockroach Labs. In this conversation between Tim and Peter, you can expect to hear how Cockroach DB is architected how the architecture has evolved, and what Peter thinks is the future of serverless databases as we go forward. So tune in and hope you have a great time listening to this episode.
1: Well, welcome to another edition of Big Ideas in App Architecture. Today, I am very excited to have on the show the co-founder and CTO of Cockroach Labs, Peter Mattis. Peter, welcome to the show. Before we get kind of into the thick of architecture and big ideas and all this other stuff, I always find it super interesting to start with kind of your history. You know, how in the world did you come to found and start, you know, this very interesting company? So maybe if you can just, you know, start by telling us a little bit about you, a little bit about your background, and then we'll kind of slowly get into the history of Cockroach Labs and all things cockroaches. All right, sounds good, Tim. Well, thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
2: Uh, My history goes way, way back. Uh, I've been in industry going on 25 years now, something like that. So, you know, I got my undergraduate degree at Berkeley. And while at Berkeley, I actually met my co founder, um, our co founder, Spencer Kimball. He was uh, my roommate. He was actually my brother's roommate first, and then he was my roommate. And we quickly, you know, understood that we had. Like, we were like minded. We loved software and whatnot. Um, back to my undergraduate degrees, degree, I actually uh, got started in graphics. Graphics was my entry drug into computers, you know, kind of gaming, but more of the graphics side. And Spencer and I uh, started this little program that got a bunch of traction afterward called the GIMP. Um, so I did graphics all through my undergrad days. And then I graduated and I was kind of tired of graphics and I moved away from it. And uh, I joined a startup one of my professors had um, founded, uh, called Inktimi. They were an early search engine. They eventually got bought by Yahoo. And early days at Inktimi, I was involved in doing network programming, distributed systems programming. Not really stuff I'd really done much of in college, but I really liked it. It was a different challenge. From there, bounced around to a couple other startups and then eventually landed at Google. And I was at Google for just shy of a decade and worked on a lot of cool distributed systems problems at Google. I was an early architect of the the Gmail search and indexing backend, um, then worked on distributed file systems, worked on their uh, Google 3 build system, which now is known externally as Bazel. Internally inside Google, it's still known as displays. Um, Got deep exposure to you know, a lot of the, the big distributed systems problems Google was tackling and how they were tackling it. Then eventually, inside my time at Google was up, and I moved on. And And Spencer and I actually did a startup uh, before Cockroach Labs uh, called Viewfinder. It was a mobile photo sharing site. Uh, very, you know, think Instagram, think Snapchat, yeah. but we didn't have the secret sauce. We were getting started right at the same time. We could have had success. We didn't have success. We're not consumer guys. We're backend engineers. Um, we actually, it was at Viewfinder that we actually had the original idea for CockroachDB. And I mean, what what essentially happened is we got outside of Google and we looked around at the ecosystem that was out there and we're like, uh, you know, what can we use to, for backend storage for these photos and messages in our mobile photo sharing site? And we weren't terribly fond of what we saw, you know, Cassandra's out there, HBase was out there, React was out there, and we're like, eh, you know, um, well, let's sketch out what the design for for how we do, we would do this. And we did, and then we decided, no, 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 that this is well, this is a complete tangent from what we're doing um, at the startup. So we we put it on the shelf, and then that startup foundered, we got hired by Square, and inside Square, we saw the exact same problems, the need for a distributed, horizontally scalable database, and kicked around some ideas at Square, and eventually uh, left Square to form Cockroach Labs. Um, and I was just in there from the beginning with Spencer. And then we had our other co-founder Ben coming
1: along. Um, but that's uh, yeah, when in a when did you all meet, When did you all meet Ben in, in that uh, journey? Was that at Google or was that before? That was at Google. Okay. So I started at Google
2: in uh, it was April two thousand and two. I think it was April first of two thousand two. I remember that because. April Fool's Day, and as soon as I got there, I was like, "Wow, this is this place is awesome," and I convinced Spencer, "You you have to join," and so helped get Spencer, you know, interviewing, help get him his job. So he you know, what was what, what did
1: he want to do? He didn't
2: want to. He he was kind of on the lam right then, you know, just kind of you know floating along, you know, not quite sure he'd had his own start at the time that had you know gone under. And he wasn't quite sure what he wanted to do. I was like, no, no, this is is it. This is the way. You got to come to Google. And this was happening all over the place. Everybody was referring their friends to Google. Once you get in there, you're referring your friends. Um, So how did we meet Ben? Spencer and Ben started on the same day at
1: Google. Oh, that's funny. They became partners.
2: Yeah, they became partners um, working on the same
1: project. Now, I should know this. So so you were in it 2002, but Google started when? I mean, this was still very early at Google, right? Yeah, I think they started in 1998. If I okay, remember so correctly, just
2: a couple years. They were a couple years in, four years in, um, but they were pretty sizable at that point. I think three hundred something, wow. four hundred employees. Wow, and they were going like gangbusters already.
1: Oh, um, I can imagine. So I want to go back just a little bit further because I, you know, I think I've shared this story with you before. Um, you know, I obviously had read about you when joining the company and, and your history, but when somebody told me that you had founded this this graphics program, that like blew my mind. Uh, because I remember, you know, as I was starting in my career, you know, you you get a new PC or whatever, and like, you know, there are five applications that you install on that PC. GIMP was one of them. It was like the thing that you installed uh, if you wanted to do image editing. I mean, I, I'm just curious, how what was it about graphics? I mean, you know, when you're when you're a freshman in college and you're like, hey, this is what I want to do with my life. What was it about about that aspect or images or graphics that had you? Um, you know, so intrigued? What was it yeah. you were thinking or hoping you were going to do with that? Or did you know? I did not
2: know. I mean, <laughs> okay. the honest truth is sometimes you start these things and you don't know. Yeah, I mean, it'd be nice to say it's like, ah, you sketched out the vision, you know, early days of of what you want this to become. And no, the reality was uh, Spencer and I, I can't I remember what class it was. I think it was an operating systems class. We were taking this operating systems class. We're a little bit bored in it. And we're just like, hey, let's do something on the side for fun. And Linux was up and coming during that mm-hmm. time. And so much work had been put in the compiler, the operating system, those basic tools. But the application layer was a little bit Spartan. And, you know, I been doing some you know, in high school. I'd worked on the journalism program. I'd had some exposure to Photoshop and Illustrator and some of those other tools. I'm like, you know, like, let's just do something like Photoshop. And I think I, I described it in those terms. I'm like, well, we have to start here. We just kind of started small mm-hmm. and it kind of snowballed. Like you get something working and then you keep on adding things on and you're like, Oh, but I can do this. I can do that. I can add this widget. I can do this kind of graphics effect. I can add this tool. And before, you know, it, you sit down and you look, and like, oh, this thing is actually kind of useful. And open source was early days then so it wasn't like you just started doing this all in the open they didn't have Git, they didn't have github no. so we we would just go on to these uh, usenet groups and be like hey we got this tool let's uh, you,
1: where did you commit code to it that that because that would have been so long it was before github it was before everything it was like sourceforge or no it was before
2: sourceforge i can't remember exactly what we're doing like we had a, a friend who developed his own version control system uh, <laughs> PCRE, I think, is what it was called. Yeah, I think that that kind of rings a bell. Yeah, um, there, there there was uh, some some tool back then, and we were just kind of like FTPing back and forth between our personal computers, the source code, and like you know doing code dumps like that. Eventually, like when we initially showed the source code for for GIMP, we were just putting it up on FTP. Here's a, a snapshot of the source code. Put it on up on FTP. had some build instructions and whatnot.
1: I all I all I remember is building these laptops or or you know desktops, installing it, and I would use I would use it to em, uh, edit images for like websites websites I was building at the time. You know, had to yeah. create some graphics, some banners. Like, where did I do that? I did it again. I love these That's stories. So funny yeah i know yeah, right. it's, it's amazing to me i mean that was one of, like i said that was one of the first things that stood out to me when when learning about you guys i, yeah, I thought yeah. that was so fascinating
2: but we, we moved on you know i i never touched it
1: I yeah you guys aren't involved
2: anymore right not anymore but i mean it happened pretty quickly left college and just got busy with that day job hardly had time for it and it was just kind of serendipitous timing that there was enough people in the community who were willing to step up and kind of take over ownership of it i think something different would happen nowadays nowadays you know if like two guys in college you know, made this such a great program. You could probably get VC funding right away. Yeah, yeah. Get VC's knocking down your door, and probably gone so. down to a different path.
1: Um. So one of the other things I want to talk about, you know, just related to your history, because this comes up a lot. You know, as as a cockroach uh, employee myself, when we're out talking to people in the field, people always say, "Oh, yeah, you guys are, you guys are open source Spanner, or you know, you're built on top of Spanner." Or, you know, the other thing we hear a lot, I mean, there's always some spanner angle, right? Or it's your founder's built spanner, which I, you know, you and I know isn't true, but there is a there is some inspiration there. And so I, you know, I thought maybe it'd be good just, you know, for the audience to kind of clarify, you know, not only what tool I mean, you mentioned it already, but you know, kind of what, what you were working on at Google. And then, you know, how did Spanner, if at all, influence kind of some of the early thinking around cockroach TV? Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
2: definitely some confusion over this. I, I never touched the line of code in Spanner. Um, so I worked on this uh, system at Google called Colossus. Uh, and inside, Google has this distributed file system. They had a version one of this called uh, GFS, the Google File System. Uh, there's a famous paper about that. And there's a version two called Colossus. And I think Colossus is still in existence. It's just continued to be extended. Um, for the, the audience, I've, I left Google back in 2011. So my up-to-date knowledge about what they're doing is... You know, my knowledge is no longer relevant, no longer up to date. But Colossus is this kind of foundational component for a lot of the infrastructure they have um, inside uh, Google. And one of the systems that built on top of Colossus Table. Uh, Bigtable. Um, so Bigtable is this, uh, it's essentially HBase's open source version of Bigtable. Um, it's a, you know, horizontally scalable key value store, columnar key value store, not transactional. doesn't have transactions, didn't have SQL. Um When Bigtable came out inside Google, a lot of applications started to try to build on top of it. And they were semi-successful. It allowed you to get web-scale applications, but there's a lot of frictions with that programming model. And you saw the applications team running to these frictions and trying to work around with the application layer. And some of these workarounds were pretty significant. There was this other tool built on top of Bigtable called Megastore that added transactions and secondary indexes. And at some point, the designers of Bigtable were like, wait a minute. This isn't good. We should actually just put all this into the database itself. And that's where um, Spanner started. So I was there when Spanner was getting started. Bigtable and Colossus are essentially sister teams, right? Um, Bigtable worked on top of Colossus. We were working closely with the Bigtable team. I did contribute some code to Bigtable at some point because there's this whole transition from GFS to Colossus, and I helped smooth that transition with some changes in Bigtable. Table. The Spanner team was completely uh, separate, something that was, you know, team members from Big Table moved over to Spanner. Um, I never interacted or dealt anything with the Spanner code itself, but I saw the reason it was coming to existence. It was trying to make the applica- application development easier. And we noted that. Then we saw like the continued refinements of that, putting a SQL interface um, on top of Spanner. So it could be used by the ad serving system. And that was really part of the motivation where we had started with the Cockroach is it wasn't just to do some, you know, transactionally consistent key value store, but is really to acknowledge that you want to be doing this in the database where there's database expertise and not doing it at the application level. When people are putting all this database logic into applications, they usually do it in a way that is fragile. It's custom to what the application needs, mm-hmm. and it often works and then it's not maintainable long term. Uh customers and i've seen this myself like some genius goes in and puts transactions on top of non transactional database and no one can maintain it in the future does something similar for indexes so we knew we you know we, we took a lot of lessons from that um and then also the spanner paper came out and uh that was actually part of the reason that we were able to get cockroach labs up and running is vcs are actually just looking at the, the research papers that come out of google and then looking to fund companies based on those so that's a uh, a pro tip for the, the audience members who are looking to found a company. I like that. Just based, just based on, so that's my
1: paper that came out of Google. <laughs> I like that. So the other, you know, the other interesting question that comes up a lot, you know, when we're in the field, you know, as, as you know, I work a lot of, a lot of events and, you know, people come up to me, they see the banner behind us and they say, what in God's name is DB?" You know, what? What is this name? How did you come up with this name? So, I mean, you know, I, I know the superficial answer to that, but I, you know, I wonder if there's like a deeper story here about how y'all came up with this name, Cockroach DB, to describe this this new database.
2: Yeah. Well, clearly, you know, we named the GIMP. We named Cockroach. We're really <laughs> good with pen- names. Pension for naming things. Yeah, yes, clearly for naming things. I mean, I, I will take credit. I came up with the name GIMP. Did you really? Uh, All right. right yeah so you know just kicking around names you're building something up well we got to name this thing it's kind of important to give things a name so you can talk about it and something that's a little bit like you know yeah i think you sense our our humor there a little bit edgy yeah uh spencer was the one who came up with the name cockroach uh i think we're sitting around his dining room table just kind of like you know sketching out the idea for this thing you know we want to be scalable we want to like you know kind of you know be indestructible and we're just And I don't know where it came from exactly, but he's like, we got to call it the same cockroach. You know, those things are going to survive the next nuclear holocaust. And we want this thing to be indestructible and unkillable. So uh, cockroach TV. And then like, as soon as he said it, it just kind of like, you know, it stuck. We kind of started spreading the name and, you know, the the initial reactions were mixed, but. Pretty universally, you don't forget the name. uh, Oh, for sure. I'm curious. We love that aspect.
1: I mean, I I know out in the field when we're talking with customers, you know, oftentimes it's you know when we explain the reasons why, which which you kind of did, you know, people's eyes light up and they totally get it. We have had a couple instances where people simply don't want to deal with the name, you know, that it freaks them out, or they want us to change the name on paperwork or something like that. But I'm curious, like when you when you guys first started to kind of take this around to vcs to you know to to kind of some you know early prospects or 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 whomever investors what what was the reaction were were people kind of or was it immediate hey this is this is great i've just cur- i've never heard a description of yeah. what some of that early reaction was
2: yeah i mean i was super surprised we so uh, Spencer and I did this, you know, initial fundraising round right when Cockroach Labs got formed and we, we took a tour of the Bay Area to, to all these nice VCs and uh, not a single one blinked an eye at the name. Really? It was just incredible. I, I kind of thought like we go up there and we'd be, you know, we announce ourselves to the secretary. Hey, we're Peter Madison, Spencer yeah. Kimball from Cockroach Labs. And they're just like, okay, you know, nothing. There was nothing at all. So the VCs were just nonplussed by the name. Um, several of them commented that they really loved it. You know, it was huh. very memorable. Yeah. We got that. Um, I do remember distinctly though, like yeah, maybe a couple months or a year and we started actually doing talks, tech talks at companies trying to spur some initial interest in Cockerish TV. And I, I remember giving one early days and uh, afterward an audience member came up to me and he was like, oh, this is really interesting what you're doing, but I guarantee you, no CIO will ever sign a check to Cockroach Labs and you just have to change the name. And I was like, uh, okay, no, we're not going to change the name, but okay. <laughs> and then, you know, fast forward like another five years and, you know, CIOs seem to have gotten over their reluctance. I don't think that guy knew what he was talking about.
1: Yeah. If are Definitely you know, don't uh, think that uh, that guy knew what he was talking about. No, I think we mm-hmm. haven't had that problem.
2: Yeah, but we, we we have heard repeatedly, you know, there there is some very strong negative reaction from a very small segment.
1: You know, I, I'll say this, I, you know, having, again, spent a lot of time out in the field, it is so unique and differentiated. And, you know, although people aren't necessarily at first pass always going to understand what we do, um, you know, once you give the quick explanation, it absolutely and totally resonates. I mean, people get it, you know, it's like their eyes light up. They're like, yes. Yes, yeah. I like this.
2: And then we, we actually are, are softening the term over time. I mean, I don't know what your perception is of cockroaches anymore when you hear the term, but I have a generally positive connotation towards that term nowadays. <laughs> I, I, I And do. I think that's true of many people at Cockroach Labs and our, some of our customers too. So, you know, well, if, there's you have no shortage.
1: if you have a fear of cockroaches, you should come work here because we will actually um, kind well, of and, – And, of course, because we use it everywhere for everything, like, you know, no company event or, or title <laughs> – uh, you know goes by without somehow making the tie-in yeah but that's okay we love them and it and it's, it's been great so just going back to to kind of the database itself um you know it, it's been now out in the wild for was it eight years i think we just had our eight-year anniversary you know we're adding new features new capabilities all the time but if memory serves me correctly you know the database th- that you had in the in the first couple years looks a lot different than it does today can you kind of talk a little bit about, you know, what some of those big changes were? Or what some of the, you know, the early differences, the differences from the early days to today are? I know, for example, SQL wasn't always a thing. There was some debate about about that, about the nature of SQL that you can use. Can you talk a little bit about, and what were some of the the early designs or thoughts about CockroachDB when you first got started? Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, I mean, you're absolutely correct. I I think we're known as a distributed SQL database today, and we put a lot of effort behind that. We did not start out that way. With that initial roadshow with investors, we were talking about being a distributed, horizontally scalable, transactional KV database and we thought we we're going to provide a kv interface um, to users and we were you know I think it was six months nine months into the lifetime of the company trying to figure out exactly what this kv interface we had like you know initial prototypes for what it looked like figure out what that kv interface would look like and you know as we're looking at this more and more we're just like wow you know we want to make this thing rich and powerful you know doing something new there has a lot of overhead to get people to adopt it and we decided to go with SQL. And we initially, we, we made kind of a two-step decision there. We decided to go with SQL. And then we're trying to figure out, like, what dialect of SQL do we want to do? And we decided to go for Postgres, just think, thinking, you know, the, the thought process being they're a little bit more adherent to the SQL standard than MySQL. And that was momentous. Um, you know, as soon as we made that decision, we took on a huge chunk of additional work. Um, but, but were taking a huge burden off application developers. Oh, absolutely. And that that was just right in line. You know, our our investors were super excited about this. Early customers were that they were also like, "How are you going to do all this stuff?" They they didn't see the path where we were to where we are today, uh, which is it's a very significant path. You know, you have to build up, you know, this kind of SQL execution engine. We had to add a SQL optimizer. Um, it implied a lot of things, and you know, there's significant challenges we had to overcome. Um, that, that was like pretty the, the biggest, most momentous decision that we you know we changed path on. Um, there's just a ton of other stuff that it has evolved over time. you know our backup restore system, the addition of change data capture, I mean change data capture, we were getting started. That wasn't on our radar, um, but it's clearly clearly super important. Um, and then of late, you know one of the big things that's really evolved over the past couple of years is just the importance of migrations, making it easy to get existing applications, Uh, onto CockroachDB. And this comes in in a whole bunch of different flavors. I mean, we've done work on Postgres compatibility for a long time. That's a huge impact on migrations. support for drivers and ORMs and other uh, development tooling that that programmers like to use. Um, But it's deeper than that. It's like, you know, does the application have to change at all? And for some things, there's certain fundamental things that make you know you kind of need to change it when you're moving from a, a legacy single-node database to a distributed one. I'll give you one example of this. If you are using sequences, the sequence type, that's like the single hotspot, and any distributed database is going to struggle with that. You're going to have a limitation on how far it can scale it. And if you can replace it with something like a UUID you're going to be able to get much higher throughput out of your sharded database. But that's one example of something that feels a little bit fundamental. And yet even that one, we're still working to make it better. Now we have hash sharded indexes so that we can you know, try to you know, spread across that uh, right hotspot. Um, but everything I think we're doing that we've done to date we had this original mission when we formed Co- Cockroach Labs, and I really love that mission statement. It's like very broad, very ambitious. It's just make data easy. We want to make data easy for our users, and I, like we moved away from that mission, but I, I still love it as just super simple
1: um, and also a guiding principle. Oh, well, I, I think it's amazing, and I and I, I I wonder too, you know, when you guys first started out, obviously, you know, the product has grown in complexity. Did you, did you have a sense of how? I don't, and I don't want to make it sound negative, but all the things because you just you know listed a lot of stuff and there's even more to the product obviously did you have a sense of how rich this product or feature set was going to need to be in order to compete in the space you know when you first started out um because you know to compete against some of the largest companies in the world who are building database products you need to have you know just this very wide ranging set of features i mean was that part of kind of the early thinking like hey we're going to we've got, you know, we're going to start here, but we've got this mile long list of features. Did, did you ever really think that far out? I mean, I'm just always so curious about yeah, people's yeah. And, mindset yeah. when they get started, you know, because you're uh, eight years yeah. into it now.
2: Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great question. And honestly, no, we did not. And I think that's something that is a useful attribute in a successful founder, that you have to be smart enough, bold enough yeah. to, to be able to, to set something in motion, get the foundation in place but not so smart that you see exactly how much work it's going to be. I mean, if you're like standing at the base of the mountain and you look up and you actually can see to the peak and see how high Everest is, no one would ever climb it, but you just start, you know, putting one foot in front of the other. Uh, there's this phrase I like, um, mountains beyond mountains I, I feel that that's the startup journey you know you can kind of see the mountain in front of you and it's intimidating but you can see a path to the top of it and you get to the top of that mountain and you realize there's another mountain beyond it and you just go like okay i actually i can see what i need to do i'm going to start walking down that and you know accomplish that and there's another mountain beyond that right so you know we we've got to this point now you know we built you know this this we, we've summited many of these mountains you know we're we're You have this distributed horizontally scalable SQL database. It actually works for mission critical workloads out there in the world. And yet there's additional stuff, the migration stuff I was just touching on. That is a mountain we're going to be climbing for years. There's just so much work to do there to make it seamless and easy and, you know, not just have like, you know, enable a migration, but doing it with zero downtime, for example, live migrations. And like that, that's the thing that keeps me going still is like, I I can, I I just keep on seeing the, the the next fountain and being like i see a, a way to accomplish that
0: do you think we'll see, ever
2: be done no i don't think so done. i don't think please we'll so so. we, we tim and peter might be done at some point but cockroach labs will never be done always a long backlog of features for sure yeah and, and for you know the you know like i kind of saw some of what was going to be needed for you know, the, the fundamental capabilities of a distributed database, the, the thing that I had no visibility to is just the amazing amount of integration you have to do with the enterprise ecosystem. And this comes up all over the place. Security is a huge thing. How much security encompasses the compliance uh, standards you need to adhere to, um, observability integrations, um, the ORM integrations. I didn't realize how how long that tail of functionality was going to be.
1: No, I I agree with you. And of course, as you know, I mean, we're on the front lines of it and, and hear about, you know, a new thing every day that that people want to do or use with cockroach. But I think, you know, we're solving a fundamentally important problem that is has been, I think, traditionally very difficult for other companies to solve. And I read an interesting article and I'm curious about your perspective on this. You know this idea that that moore's law is dead you know that that cpu power is kind of flatlining if you will you know it's not doubling every year and and the argument that was being made there is that you know whereas traditional databases you know you could easily kind of swap out your you know your your main database node or server with a, a cpu that was much much faster to kind of continue to eke out performance you know you simply can't do that anymore and to really um You know, to really keep up ultimately with modern workloads and modern expectations, you need to be able to scale horizontally your database. You know, you can't just any longer rely on Moore's law to get you additional performance from the same old box. And so I think, you know, what's interesting about where we are as a company right now and and what we're doing is that I feel like all these market forces are, are moving in our direction. You know, distributed databases are absolutely a thing that people need. You know, being able to run across cloud providers turns out to be a really, really powerful tool. SQL as a language turns out to be incredibly popular and powerful right now. And um, it seems like all of these things that, you know, I think you and, and, and Peter or, or Ben and Spencer kind of thought, oh, this might be a good idea, you know, eight years ago turn out to be like, I think, right at the heart of where people need to go right now. I, I'm just curious on your thought of like the timing of it all. Yeah, better to be lucky than good, I guess
2: is maybe something I'd think about. I mean, I I, I think some some of this was we had foresight into. Um, certainly, our experiences at Google give us you know yeah. some foresight that you know, horizontal scalability was extraordinarily important and that there are limits to the vertical scaling you can see of a a single machine. Um, This is, you know, more slot on the CPU. This is the amount of RAM you can pump into them, amount of uh, disk you can put onto them. And then there's also just kind of fundamental reliability aspects uh, if you put that much hardware into a single machine. So we saw the the horizontal scalability was going to be extremely important. Um, Yeah, the SQL stuff is maybe a little bit surprising to me. Um, I didn't, Know how much life SQL would have, um, but you know when we started looking at that, you know, and I was on the forefront of looking at like SQL versus alternatives. It was very clear. It's like you know, Cassandra is big. You know, HBase had some traction, but SQL dwarfed it all by like two orders of magnitude, and and so there was like definitely foresight. It's like this thing is there. It's not going away. It's being enhanced, and people are extending it. And it's like, it's only continued to be that way. Like, I think, you know, at the time that we were starting Cockroach Labs, NoSQL was still like a hot thing, but we were actually
1: on the tail end of that. And I think I mean, yeah. NoSQL isn't going to go away, but SQL was uh, resurgent. Yeah, I'm point. very curious about that because it's interesting, you know, when you guys were kind of meeting with those early investors, I think you're right. I mean, NoSQL was very much the thing. Was there any concern at the time that, you know, this was going to be too crowded of a market? I mean, I get, I'm trying to remember what else would have been out there at the time that was like, pure no sequel but you know certainly yeah. f- for me now sequel is such a big differentiator but then you guys didn't have it what was what were the kind of hallmarks of the, the differentiation back then if you if you can recall
2: yeah i mean the some of our early investors they were familiar with the hadoop ecosystem mm-hmm. they they saw how it had grown they saw how it also was running to its you know limitations cassandra was out at that time react was also out at that time um yeah. The, I mean, the, the differentiators we were originally going into, though, is basically like our pitch, you know, to some extent was, hey, we're going to be the open source Spanner. You know, you saw like the, how, yeah. you know, Big Table and GFS and uh, MapReduce had spawned the deep uh, ecosystem. Well, Spanner is also going to spawn it. And the thesis was pretty easy for investors to wrap their heads around that you want to have this, you know. And by the way, Spanner at the time was also a KB system. It it added yes. SQL uh, later on. So they, they were just looking at that, you know, like, ah.
1: Okay, I guess I didn't
2: realize that. I thought they were always SQL. Yeah, no, no. They they actually, the SQL got added in later, but the the cloud spanner has always been SQL, uh, has always had SQL. But the internal version just had a a KV version. And then there's like a separate application team um, for the AdWords actually put SQL on top and then they blended it back in over time. But it, it was really like, you know, our initial pitch was like, hey, we don't want to burden application developers. No SQL puts a burden on them. You you lose transactions. You use indexes. You use this rich lose this rich query language. Well, we want to you know put back in transactions and indexes. We feel that these are things that it's database engineers are best suited for
1: implementing. Yeah, absolutely. One other thing I wanted to touch on. Well, we may want to touch on, on many things, but the the other kind of big I think mo- monumental change, at least from my perspective, you may may disagree. I mean, certainly introducing SQL was was. You know a big change i think in the direction of the history of cockroach but you know what what many people also i think have heard about at times is that oh there's something to do with RocksDB. you know rocks is this underpinning of of cockroach you know at some point over the last couple of years you know we made a move away from that to something we call pebble um and i know you were very very much involved in in that decision and engineering process can you kind of walk us through you know a little bit of the history of of RocksDB? You know and how and why cockroach was using it and then and then what happened when we decided or what what initiated the thinking behind moving beyond that
2: yeah yeah so rocksdb is this you know low level key value storage engine What i mean by low level it's, it's really for a single machine this is how cockroach db initially was storing data on disk is using rocksdb rocksdb doesn't have transactions but it has atomicity and and consistency and durability guarantees, um, and so we were building CockroachDB on top of this. Um, and you know, to be clear, it's not that you know CockroachDB is just oh, it's the RocksDB with a little like a small bit of glue. It was actually the the glue is very significant, but RocksDB was an incredibly important component of that. And RocksDB is fast. It's it comes from Facebook. Um, its pedigree is actually there's a an open source software um, from Google called LevelDB. The RocksDB folks forks. Folks took it, forked it, and made RocksDB, and then you know, added a whole bunch of optimizations and enhancements for functionality. Um, so we were relatively happy with RocksDB. You know, when you're building a system as complex as CockroachDB, you don't necessarily want to build everything from scratch. And RocksDB was one of the big components we were deciding to use. Another big component, we decided to use GRPC for um, communication between nodes. And you know, there's several other big pieces of open source software that we were built on top top of. Um, there was a little bit of an impedance mismatch with RocksDB though, because CockroachDB is written in Go. Uh, we like that choice. you know, Some grumbles on the edges with garbage collection, but we're generally very happy about that choice. RocksDB is written in C++. And in order to bridge the two, you have to use this functionality from Go called Cgo. And this implies a some fundamental overhead in doing certain calls. And We mostly worked around them, but it was a bit of a headache. And so our interface between uh, the main CockroachDB code and RocksDB was fairly narrow and very tailored to be heavily optimized, but that made it somewhat inflexible. And we looked at some point, you know, like, A, we didn't have expertise uh, for, you know, maintaining RocksDB. Uh, knowing the C++ code, and we could have built that up over time, but there's, you know, like we had half have, have engineer transitioning between Go and C++. And at some point we're like, no, actually we think we can do this um, ourselves better. And essentially, you know, you can look at Pebbles, you know, almost a fork of RocksDB. Um, it's, re- you know, essentially it was RocksDB stripped of all the things that we didn't use at CockroachDB and re- re-implemented in Go. And it was great to to see that we could actually get something as performant or actually faster for CockroachDB written in Go, it removed all this kind of that, that impedance mismatch I'm talking about. You know, the, the transition between Go and C And then since doing that, we've been able to keep on extending it with functionality that is very much tailored to CockroachDB that wouldn't necessarily be uh, useful to to try to upstream back into RocksDB.
1: Yeah, I think it's been it's been a huge win for us all around, and of course it shows again the Cockroach Labs team penchant for naming things. You know, Hmm. RocksDB, but want a smaller, more compliant version of a rock, which is that is exactly where the name came from. (laughs) We we love this stuff. You know, you touched on another interesting topic. I, I kind of wanted to get your perspective on. So, you know, this kind of lineage between RocksDB and Pebble, obviously borrowing or using some of this code initially. You know, we're a Postgres compatible database, but oftentimes in the field you know or just maybe a casual observer will hear postgres and think we are a fork of postgres you know that that we're just we've we've done something to the postgres binary and added some features to it can you talk a little bit about about that and you know some of the reasons why we didn't go down that road perhaps i'm just curious you know yeah your your thoughts on this topic
2: yeah yeah no we we are we are not a fork of postgres we do not take any code from postgres I think there might have been a couple of occasions where we tried to reverse engineer <coughs> precise semantics of Postgres, um, but we've done that very light code spelunking, not anything where we've actually taken in forked code. Um, part of the reason for doing this, the underlying storage engine, you know, the, the capabilities of our KV are fairly different than what Postgres are. And trying to map the Postgres code onto that you know, it was kind of felt more difficult than than doing it. Um, there's another aspect to it too. We weren't committed when we initially did SQL what, to, to being fully Postgres compatible. And that was actually something that if I could go back and do it again, I would have just made the mandate initially. We were just going to be perfectly Postgres um, SQL compatible. We we said like for the, the SQL we implement, we want to be compatible with Postgres, but not necessarily doing the full kit and caboodle. And that was one of the, the lessons, you know, it's like, I really loved having made that decision to adopt SQL. I really loved adopting PostgreSQL um, as our as our dialect. Just should have made that you know decision right up front. Just be fully compatible. It would have removed a lot of headaches we had later on um, with regards to compatibility. That you know we're nearly at the tail end of this now. Um, I look at this every now and then. We kept on chipping away at our compatibility. We're we're nearly done with it, um, and we've we've been to a sufficient level for years, but. I think we could have gotten there a lot faster if we just upfront said, "No, this is the the goal we're shooting towards."
1: Are there, you know, you, you, you kind of touched on another interesting topic, which you and I've talked a little bit about before. I mean, you know, these kind of idea of lessons learned. So that's that's a great lesson learned, I think, when you look back at the eight years of history with with cockroach. Are there other things that jump out to you? Like, geez, I wish I. I wish I had known then what I know now. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be technical. Maybe it's just about you know leading an organization or, or all sorts of other stuff. I and mean, you've had such a an interesting yeah. role in the evolution of of the company and the product. I mean, what any other thoughts come to mind about you know lessons learned?
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the ones that uh, strikes me, I always think about this nowadays because uh, we're still dealing with it a little bit. We, we've added a lot of multi tenancy features to Cockroach uh, of late. Um, and one of the things that, it, you know, like this has enabled us is a, a very clean separation between user data and system data. And I wish we would have made that separation much more clear up front. Uh, part of the, I mean, the multi-tenancy is great because it's enabling serverless functionality. We've had to retrofit this onto the system in order to to to, to get multi-tenancy deeply embedded. And it would have been much easier to do it from the get-go. And this separation between user data and system data, which isn't quite tied to multi-tenancy, that is kind of a separate thing, but it's just the realization. User data from the perspective of an operator as we're operating Cockroach in the Cloud is kind of quote-unquote toxic. You don't want anybody inside Cockroach Labs to see this. And we've done had to you know, go through and ensure that we're redacting any mention of user data from... Operator views, but to leave the system still operable, observable, debuggable while redacting all that user data is um, taking quite a bit of effort. And it's just one of those things. If you had known upfront about this, and you know, known this is a you know a core principle that you need to be you know adhering to, it would just been a lot easier. I think the, the, you know the other thing that you know. We we had some early, you know, feedback on, and I kind of think that our call here was right was just about should we be adopting the cloud or being and perhaps even cloud only. Um, I think if we were starting today, it we we would have to fight a lot harder to make it so that CockroachDB DB was available self-hosted. I'm happy that CockroachDB DB is self-hosted, but you know, that the world has moved on, it's kind of clear that you can build cloud only uh Software as a Service companies, you know, Snowflake is a primary example of this. Completely issuing the, you know, the self-hosted route just to focus on the cloud. We we didn't get that, and I, I think it was the right decision. But I look back on it, it's like a couple years difference, and we probably <laughs> wouldn't have made a
1: a different decision. Well, but we are doing some interesting things in the cloud, I think, and and you mentioned it, but I, I, I curious or would love to kind of get your perspective on not only kind of where the inspiration came from, but you know, to some extent, where we think we're going, and that is. That is this concept of serverless. Um, I know serverless can mean lots of different things to, to lots of different people. Kind of, it's a term that comes with its own set of expectations. But we do have a database that, that we're calling kind of our serverless product. Can you kind of share with our our listeners what this is and maybe how it's different from you know conventional definitions of serverless or not? Yeah. I'm not even sure what the conventional definition of
2: serverless is anymore. It, it means so many things to different people. I mean, when we think about serverless, I really think about like not having to worry about the database servers. There's clearly database servers on the back end. You don't have to worry about them. And this is serverless in the way that S3 is serverless. You're storing data in S3. What servers do you see there as a user? You don't see it. They're just providing guarantees around what the API is going to be, the durability, the response times. And you're not wor- having to worry about the servers whatsoever. And we think this is core for database users as well. I mean, I think there's some, you know, database users, you know, that, that haven't kind of caught on to this that are thinking like, no, I need to worry about like, I have servers, I have them at this location, you know, but really that provisioning headache of like what servers in particular, how do you add new ones in response to changes in load or workload or, or whatnot, that's a painful, painful thing to be doing it. And I, I have a dream. I have a dream that at some point in the future, application developers never have to worry about their their database servers. They're just worrying about, I have this database API in the cloud, it's SQL. I can set guardrails on how much I'm gonna spend on this and it will scale with me. It'll scale with me to the geographic locations I need. It'll scale horizontally, horizontally within those geographic locations. You just completely get rid of that concern about servers. The other aspect of serverless for us, though, is we want to scale down to incredibly small sizes. So, the the implementation here is kind of interesting to understand. You're essentially, there's still servers underneath. There's always going to be servers, but you just get a virtual slice and you don't have to worry that, you know, like, oh, I need like these physical servers in this physical location. No, and because it's a virtual slice, it can scale down so that, you know, if you're not using it at all, you pay. Close to zero, you know, depends on how much data you're storing. We might charge you some, but it's close to zero. And it elastically scales up very responsibly uh, under demand, um, which is also an incredibly important aspect. This isn't serverless per se. uh, but This is what serverless enables is, you know, you should get charged for what you're using. And that means, you know, adjusting to load during the day. So many applications have peaks of load, you know, during lunchtime or dinner time or you know when a new story comes out and elastically scaling up to meet that node and then scaling down when it's not being used anymore uh, can make your system a lot more cost effective
1: yeah i think it's some really powerful concepts and i think you know and correct me if i'm wrong but kind of the underpinning of this or at least part of it is this this ability of cockroach now to really separate kind of compute from storage and by mm. compute i mean sql so you know you kind of have this this idea in the serverless you know deployment model of a kind of sql nodes which are distinct and separate from the, the underlying storage nodes. And that's kind of one of the, the things that you, know, you don't really have with our more traditional offerings that you do have with serverless, is these things become different, can be scaled independently, and ultimately those SQL nodes can kind of go down to near zero, but your storage remains. And then you know, the ability to spin back up SQLs is kind of a, a neat and interesting thing. Yeah, well, you absolutely nailed it there. I have nothing to add. Great, perfect. So I know we're kind of running up on time, and I don't want to hold you more than the time allotted. Um, I- I- as you well know, this well it's spring, right? The the flowers are blooming, uh, but it's also kind of the beginning of, of the Cockroach Labs fiscal year, which always it's always a time, at least for me, to kind of reflect or or think about kind of some of the things that are that are coming in the in the near future or the year ahead. I'm just curious, like, what are some things that you're excited about? You know, as we kind of start. A new year, new fiscal year. Um, what has what has you excited? I mean, you're going into your eighth, ninth year at Cockroach Labs. Now, what's going to make this year kind of the best year in the history of the company?
2: I like it. Every year is the best year in the so history true. of the company. So yeah. true. Well, we're we're still here and we're kicking. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm excited. You know, the, the multi-tenancy stuff that we built with serverless, Um, I think we're going to start seeing. You know that. Penetrate, you know, into to other areas. Um, we're seeing companies experiment with this on their own with CockroachDB, uh, you know, on self-hosted, and they're doing it themselves. And we're like, we're like, oh, wait a minute, you know, like you guys can actually start using this functionality we built right in there. Um, you know, we've built in a lot of isolation facilities there directly into CockroachDB. Those are all coming to fruition and being you know spread throughout so that applications running on the same database they don't interfere with each other. Background operations don't interfere with foreground operations and uh, much steadier, you know, latency guarantees so that you know, like once something goes awry, things go awry. This isn't necessarily the database itself, sometimes it's the application. I mean, we've heard multiple times of Application getting rolled out, oops, forgot to add an index. This is doing a full table scan. And, you know, be able to quickly observe that. Our observability tools have gotten better. There's still ways to go. And we have things coming up that are impactful there. Um, kind of a little bit longer term there, too. I mean, what we can be doing on workload uh, recommendations, telling you when you have a missing index, um, you have unused indexes. That stuff is there now it's gonna get more powerful over time, gonna make increasingly intelligent suggestions there. And and I I love that stuff. Um, And then also we're starting to see like back on the cloud side, the serverless uh, and our dedicated offering there just increasing traction with customers. We've built a ton of functionality that uh, enterprises need to be using this stuff. And now I'm super excited to see these enterprises start to use the cloud offering, get all that good CockroachDB goodness
1: in the cloud package. Well, Peter, it was a pleasure as always to chat with you. Thank you so much for spending a a few minutes today and sharing a little bit of the history of you, the Cockroach Labs, uh, CockroachDB, and and ultimately where we're headed. So again, thank you so much for joining Big Ideas in App Architecture. Thanks for having me, Tim. This is great.